makes no sense to say you can go have a beer, but you can't go have a joint. As long as、mm. you're showing up to work sober, that's the only thing that an employer should care about. The way that cannabis works in the body too is it's fat soluble, and so a heavy user of cannabis will always have kind of latent or non-psychoactive THC in their blood being released by their fat. So these urinalysis tests and even blood tests and saliva tests that police officers use will catch that latent THC that's in the body. From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region. The founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie Sample, and on today's show, we have Ken, the founder of Gaze. They are building the fastest, safest, and most affordable roadside DUI detection device for cannabis. Gaze is a company that I founded at the beginning of 2021, and we are solving cannabis DUIs. There's currently no device on the market that can test for cannabis impairment in real time, and we're solving that problem with a self-contained device that can be used by law enforcement or businesses with safety-critical employees. Amazing. So th- this is really interesting because I think before I found out you were doing this. I really hadn't thought about the problem, and I realize like we still talk about DUIs a lot, but cannabis is becoming a topic. I'm going to get back to that. I first want to know before you got into gays, like what is your background? What were you doing beforehand, and what led you here? Sure, I've got a bit of a, a weird background, as I think a lot of entrepreneurs do. But I graduated from Montana State University in Bozeman. And went on to found a couple companies in Bozeman. I was part of a turnaround effort at an optics manufacturing business in the Bozeman area. And when when Governor Steve Bullock was reelected in Montana in 2016, I had been part of a, a group that had been advocating for certain client or cer- certain candidates on a nonpartisan basis, just the people we thought would be best for the economy and and economic growth in the state. And when he was reelected, we had been advocating for him, and he reached out to that group and and asked if we knew anybody who might be interested in、um, taking over economic development. I had been at my at at the optics company for a few years at that point, and so that seemed like a really interesting opportunity, sort of a once in a lifetime sort of thing. And so I jumped at it, and he hired me as the chief business development officer for the governor's office of economic development. So I was on his cabinet for the last four years of his administration, and it was a, it was a phenomenal and phenomenally interesting opportunity. We did a lot of really great work, I think, and and I certainly am proud of the outcomes that we had while I was there. Awesome. That's so interesting. And I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier. It looks like you've done some stuff in nonprofits, in startups, on the state level. To me, and so correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of follow your passion for where you're at at that season of life. Is that at all accurate? Yeah, it definitely is. I I've organized my life into chapters, and I think a sort of interesting way. I was one of the two co-founders of TEDx Bozeman, which was the first TEDx event in Montana. I was involved in a handful of other sort of startup tech-related nonprofits. I'm an angel investor, the Frontier Angels in Montana, and yeah, for whatever reason, my my story has unfolded in chapters, sort of one after another, and and very distinct.、Mm. 
When you were working at the state level these last four years, did you always see yourself getting back into the startup world, being a founder again? Or in in those four years, what did you think your next chapter was going to look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go in with any expectations in terms of what I would do next. I thought that, and correctly so, that the, the time in state government would be very different than the time that I'd spent in the private sector. And ultimately, it was... It was different, but not in the ways I expected. It was I, I worked with people that were just phenomenally competent and capable and, and absolutely dedicated to making Montana a great place to be, whether that's you know great outdoor activities or great access to you know trails and the outdoors or you know having great businesses or a great great business climate. Sure. Yeah, it would be so interesting. I think about the foundation you all laid down and then COVID hits and so many people (laughs) move into the state that we'll go ahead and let you claim that, right? You set the foundation for it all to happen. That was such a crazy (laughs) thing. I mean, so when I took this job over, you know, we were on a good stretch of expansion, economic expansion. So I was like, well, you know, we may face a recession while I'm in this job. And that would be kind of a, a wild thing to deal with. And instead, we, we faced a global pandemic. And that was just, I mean, so out of left field. I remember I was actually coming back from an event in California with the governor when we had our first positive case in Montana. And it was, it was like that moment, everything changed. And within a couple of weeks, we had locked the state down. And, you know, I was part of the group that was assigned with, you know, spending the one and a quarter billion dollars that Montana got from the CARES Act, which was, you know, more money than I'd ever considered. Ultimately, Montana fared really well through the pandemic. You know, we we had one of the fastest economic recoveries in the nation. We had one of the lowest case counts and death rates in the nation. So that was a very strange way to end our time in the administration. But ultimately, I'm proud of that work, too. That's great. That that's awesome. What it yeah, you'll remember that forever. I can't imagine forgetting having to go through that. So you get to the end of your time. You you knew there was a transition coming up. Is that right? Is that how it works? Yeah, as an appointed official, I was I, I had a hard end date on my position. And so everyone knew that, you know, the time was was running out and it was very much not the environment that anybody assumed we'd be job hunting in. And I can dive into how, how I sort of got to starting gaze, if that makes sense at this juncture. Yeah, yeah, because that's why I'm, I'm curious. Like, I've, I've never been in a situation where I had a hard end date, and I tend to, like, plan my life 10 years in advance. So this idea that it's like, you know you're going to transition, you're starting to think about what that would look like, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what were the ideas running through your mind? And then how did you end up on gaze? Yeah, it was very strange, all of it. <laughs> so as, you know, with a hard end date in mind, I started thinking about, you know, do I want to stay in government? Do I want to stay in politics? Do I want to stay in economic development? Do I want to go back to the private sector? And so what I did is I sat down and I thought about all the things I care about, and then I thought about what are the you know the obvious and and real problems that are in these spaces, and how can I move the needle on those? So in the course of my position leading the governor's office of economic development, I had been exposed to a lot of people that were my peers in other states, so Washington, 
California, Colorado, states that had legalized recreational cannabis. And so, you know, over the last few years, I'd been talking to them and saying, what has the impact been? And they were all, you know, for the most part, really positive about the impact. And with one exception. So it's been great for tax revenue, great to, you know, sort of take this burden off the police. But the one exception was, well, we have no way to test for, you know, cannabis impaired drivers. We have no idea if, you know, when a cop pulls somebody over, unless they can smell weed, if they've been actively smoking in the car, we have no idea if they're high. And so I started digging into that issue and it's, it's a huge problem. I mean, to not ha- to, to be legalizing an intoxicating substance and not have a way to test for it, is really kind of crazy. So there's a handful of companies that have been sort of poking at this issue, but I, I took a look at all of it and I didn't really feel like anybody had nailed it. There are some obvious flaws with a lot of the companies that have kind of made the most progress in the space. And you know, there's organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police that are like screaming about this saying, oh my gosh, you know, we don't have any device. The devices that are trying to come to market are flawed. This isn't working, we need something. And so I kind of went back to first principles and, and looked at, you know, what is the state of the art right now? And that really is a police officer on the side of the road with special training that does the little track my finger tests or track the pen light tests to see how a subject's eyes are behaving. And so based on that, I, I really thought, you know, this, it's crazy that this is such a manual process. And so I thought, you know, is there a way to automate that? Is there a way to provide data persistence in this situation? Because right now, you know, it's an officer fills out a report. And what I landed on really is gaze. And that's, it's, it's an automated standardized field sobriety test that runs in a VR headset. The VR headset is a standalone device that so can be used in the field with no, you know, tethered laptop or anything like that. And so the headset runs this automated version of the standardized field sobriety test. We have embedded eye tracking sensors the eye tracking sensors monitor eye movement throughout the test, and then we use machine learning to understand if a subject is impaired based on the data that's collected throughout that test. So what you end up with is a near instantaneous reading on the subjective impairment of a subject that has great data persistence, great data behind it, and you know an answer that can either establish probable cause for an officer or you know tell them, no, this person is not impaired, maybe they're just tired or something. Hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. So I have so many questions because I'm very naive on this topic. <laughs> I have yet to be tested on the side of the road to see if I'm impaired. Are there levels of impairedness, is the word I want to use, with cannabis like alcohol, like appropriate levels versus right. inappropriate levels? Yeah, so this is an evolving space. Cannabis works very differently in the body compared to alcohol, which is why a cannabis breathalyzer cannot work. There has never been a study that has correlated bodily THC, so the active intoxicating metabolite in, in the body is THC, delta, I can't remember what it stands for. Anyway, that's the, that's the substance that actually impairs you. And so when a, a subject is, t- you know, when they do a saliva test or a blood test right now, the, the officer will end up with a reading on the amount of THC in their blood Unfortunately, that has never been correlated to impairment. So that's not a valid way to find out if someone is impaired. And so with the standardized field sobriety tests, what you end up with is basically a count of the number of clues that someone is impaired. So if one of the tests is called horizontal gaze nystagmus, and that looks for twitching of the eye and the periphery of the vision. So if you track your stimulus to the periphery of a vision, 
if your eye cannot maintain that stimulus and starts twitching, that's an indication of impairment. And so what they're doing when they do those tests is looking for these indications of impairment. If they're present, the subject is too intoxicated to be driving. If they're not present, they're not. And so there's sort of that relatively black and white line right now. I think that as this space matures, you'll end up with a more nuanced answer to that question. But as of now, that's what it is. Oh, wow. That, and thinking about these DUIs, like the equivalent of them, cannabis-related DUIs, are people able to get like tickets based on this black and white, like an officer kind of using their best judgment? Or, or what, is, what is the trigger to get a DUI related to cannabis right now? Yeah, so it would be most likely the officer doing the standardized field sobriety test on the side of the road to establish probable cause. Then they would arrest the subject, take them back to the police station. Then they would either get a saliva test or a blood test to confirm the presence of THC. Some state legislators, legislatures, Montana included, have established what are called per se limits for the amount of THC that can be in the blood. For Montana, that's five nanograms per milliliter. And unfortunately, that's not based on any science. So the DUIs that are being written now are are usually based on this five nanograms per milliliter in blood. That presents, I think, a considerable risk to DUI prosecutors as there's no science to back up that number. Other state legislatures have established other amounts, you know, two or three nanograms per milliliter. They're basically just pulling these numbers out of thin air. There's no there's no science to say you're impaired at five, but not at four, or sorry, you're impaired at two, but not at one. There's just nothing behind that. And so that's a big problem right now. And so it's sort of building this cacophony of evidence around cannabis DUI right now that would include the officer's report, the blood test. Usually the subject is going to admit to it at some point. Yeah, I've been smoking weed or whatever. Hmm. It sounds like a a liability too. Like I know if it were me, an officer accuses me and thinks that they have enough to to take me in, make me sit there for a saliva and blood test and then be wrong. Like as a consumer, I'm going to be pretty upset and potentially even look at my options and what I can do about it. It also just seems like a really inefficient use of our officers' time. Like that sounds like a very time-consuming process for them to do all that. So I I see, and your product, it's a VR headset, so they could just be at the side of the road. The the person being pulled over or whatnot can put it on, and it's pretty quick. Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, the test takes about three minutes to complete, and then you have a near instantaneous answer from the machine learning after that. And it's within you know a, a margin of error of how quick it is to do an alcohol breathalyzer and write that up. So it's, it's really a, a quick process, particularly compared to the other option, which is you know if the officer is trained in these standardized field sobriety tests, they can administer them themselves. Otherwise, they have to call in an officer that is. There's a whole other classification of officers called drug recognition experts, and those are officers with additional training that, are, that can recognize the you know, signs and symptoms of, other, of, of substances beyond usually alcohol and cannabis. And often they're trained in polydrug use as well. So one of the things that's becoming more common is DUIs that are based on both alcohol and cannabis or another drug. And so those are complicated because you get sort of a lot of different symptoms that are manifesting all at once. So it can get 
sort of complicated over time as sure. uh, people are using more and more substances. Yeah. So something that's on my mind is I know that you're not just envisioning this as something for law enforcement. So talk to me a little bit about your vision. You're, you're early in. I do want to call out your, you're just how many, four months in, how, how many months in? Yeah, we incorporated in January of 21. So just four months in. And I've been working on this for, I don't know, eight months or so. Though. Okay. So I've had a developer building the product and I've been, I've been working on it. As I've had time, although there ha- there was <laughs> a distinct was lack a of time in the <laughs> pandemic, yeah. So uh, sure. I've been full time on it for four months. Okay, so talk to me about where else you see this at play, and and kind of what are you hearing from the market on this? It's so interesting to me. Just super curious. Yeah. So the other big space that I think this is useful in is business with safety critical employees. So if you've got uh, an employee that is going to drive a semi truck around or a a crane or is on a manufacturing line, it probably makes sense to make sure that they're not high while they're working. And so this device, I think, is particularly useful for um, employers that have that sort of employee because now they can test for employees proactively before the safety incident occurs, which is super important. The alternative to that is, okay, you smell like weed, go home, or they do what's called surveillance urinalysis, which is basically a urine test that is distinctly retroactive and usually happens only after a safety incident has occurred, or you know, some businesses do sort of programmatic urinalysis testing. But in an, in a world where cannabis is legal, there's a real question as to whether or not you can preclude someone from using cannabis on their own time and then coming to work sober, just like you can with alcohol or caffeine or whatever, any other legal intoxicant. So this provides a pathway to integrating cannabis into a a worker's life responsibly and keeping everyone else safe in the process. Okay, I want to make sure I understand you. So before your product, and and I think I know this, I think we, we used to do this at one of our companies, but don't anymore. You can have someone go test, but they're going to go test at a center, and those test results of what's present could have been present any time within the last two weeks. And what you're saying is by legalizing cannabis, it's like, who's to say that me as a consumer can't use cannabis when I'm not working? And how could I be held to that standard if my employer were to test me? Exactly. Yeah, it's oh, like wow. saying an employee can't go have a beer after work. I mean, right. if, they're, if they're on the same legal footing, it makes no sense to say you can go have a beer, but you can't go have a joint. As long as mm. you're showing up to work sober, that's the only thing that an employer should care about. The way that cannabis works in the body too is it's fat soluble. And so a heavy user of cannabis will always have kind of latent or non-psychoactive THC in their blood being released by their fat. So these urinalysis tests and even blood tests and saliva tests that, that police officers use will catch that latent THC that's in the body. And that can for a heavy user, that can cause them to fail a, a urinalysis or a, uh, a blood test you know, in a police station and get popped for a DUI when they're not actually high. So this provides a path forward to actually tell if someone is actively impaired rather than just had previously used cannabis at some point. 
Oh, wow. So interesting. And then, so we're talking about, you know, employers potentially having these products. We're talking about law enforcement. Do you see other places where this will be relevant? Or, I mean, I guess I totally get that you might be like, well, the sky's the limit because if it's legal everywhere, but what are you thinking there? Yeah, I mean, I'm really approaching this with sort of two markets in mind, law enforcement and businesses with safety critical employees. I think that, you know, there's significant opportunities in government, military. As you said, the sky's the limit. There's a lot of options here. And one of the most interesting, I think, things about the path forward that I'm taking with this problem is that with appropriate data, this should be able to detect any class of substance. So opiates, stimulants, potentially psychedelics. There's really a lot of expansion that we can do to this product and have it become more useful over time and able to detect more substances over time. Hmm. What about consumers? I'm thinking about from a consumer side, if I choose to use cannabis outside of my work and in a safe way, am I able to in some way test myself? I don't know. I know people like, I know a lot of pilots keep like breathalyzer tests in yep. their glove boxes. And that that's kind of what it makes me think of. Yeah. So there's uh it, with it not being federally legal yet, there's still, you know, the, the pilots are subject to FAA regulations. And so there's a problem there. But once it's legalized federally, which is likely going to happen in the next couple of years, yeah, this, this becomes something that probably makes sense for consumers to start using as well. It's going to be a little pricey for the average consumer, but within reach if, you know, if you're serious about making sure you're not high while you're doing something that's important for safety. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about just the legalization and where that's at. I usually think I'm up on it and you, I quickly find out I actually know very little. So we just had an election. I know some states legalized it. In the U.S., like where is it legal and where is it going to be next or what can we expect as consumers watching this market? Yeah, so it's recreationally legal in 11 states, I believe, right now, and medically legal in 35. So you end up with, and and that 11 is a subset of the 35. So it's legal in the plurality of states in the U.S. in some form. If you're serious about wanting to use cannabis, you can probably figure out a way to do it. So this is a, a really emergent problem, and as I've talked with you know law enforcement and businesses in the course of building this, it's become clear that this is one of the biggest problems that they're facing and they're desperate for a solution. I think going, well, going forward, you know, the states that have not legalized yet are, are probably going to be a little more difficult to tip to legalization at this point. They're going to be the holdouts that are, you know, uh, like Idaho is a great example. Idaho is probably never going to legalize cannabis unless there's a, a big political change in that state. The the balance of states will probably stay about where they are until it's federally legal. Can you tell me why why is the legalization political? And I get that that's a loaded question because I feel that way about every political topic, <laughs> but why is this such a political topic? Yeah, and this has been an interesting one. When it was on the, so Montana legalized via ballot initiative in in the 2020 elections. 
And I was looking at this and trying to, you know, sort of do a political analysis. Where do I think this is going to land? And I landed on, I think it's probably going to be popular among the liberals. And I think it's probably going to be popular among the libertarians. And I think those are both pretty self-explanatory. I think the group that it's least popular among are sort of the hardcore law enforcement conservatives and the conservative Christian crowd. So those are the two demographics that I would say are least likely to embrace legalization. But as I said, I've, I've talked to people that are in states that have legalized. They've been really positive on the results of legalization. You know, it's produced a lot of tax revenue for the states. It has removed the need for officers to arrest someone for, for possession of cannabis. And ultimately, you know, it, if you look at the impacts to society, it probably makes sense for cannabis to be legal. If alcohol is legal, if cigarettes are legal, it kind of doesn't make a ton of sense for cannabis then to be illegal. And so I think that people are realizing that and we're moving towards, we're moving towards a, a paradigm in which people are at least willing to have that conversation. And I think a lot of the social stigma is getting removed from it as well. Mm, okay. So interesting. I, I don't, I'm, I'll stop there. I could go down this <laughs> rabbit hole. I'm going to hold myself back mostly. And I, I just want to pull out, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion. It's just very confusing to me, but mostly because I'm not a very political person. Okay. I want to talk about your future. So you're, you know, officially four months in, you have a beautiful website. People can sign up to be on your wait list. Talk to me about the next year. What's that going to look like for you? Yeah, so what we have right now is a working um, prototype of the standardized field sobriety test and the headset. We're in a phase right now where we're building out the kind of the web portal that will allow our customers to retrieve tests that they've done. And then we're also in a data collection mode with the headset. So the, the big push immediately is collecting lots of data, which we'll use to build our machine learning algorithm. I've got a really fantastic developer on board. I've got a fantastic machine learning developer on board as well. And so I'm feeling really good about where we are technically. The challenge is, you know, this is a, a substance that's still federally illegal. And so collecting data legally of clinical quality is challenging. I'm actually looking at going to Canada to get some of that work done, which would, would alleviate a lot of the pain that I would have doing it in the U.S., which is unfortunate because now that, you know, several hundred thousand dollars gets spent in another country. But, okay, pause. I want to understand this. Tell me more about why, why is it more difficult with it not being federal if you do it at a state level? Can you, can you explain? Yeah, so any university that's studying cannabis has to get DEA approval for that. It's a Schedule One substance, so it's it's officially, as far as the federal government is concerned, has a high potential for abuse and no medical use, which is insane. That's a clear misclassification of a substance that like can stop seizures, for example. And so, at the very least, you know, we should be taking a good look at you know, what are the medical uses that are both forthcoming and well-established at this point. It's going to be a significantly more expensive thing to do it in the U.S. If you have to get DEA approval, that takes months. If you have to, uh, there's, there's actually only one source that you can get 
cannabis from for the use in studies, and it's not representative of what's found in shops where it's legal. And so that presents a problem as well. If you're smoking a half gram joint that's 6% THC versus a half gram joint that's 29% THC, those are different things. And to only have access to the 6% THC when you're studying it, and then you attempt to go and catch someone that's using 29% THC in the field, it's, it's sort of apples and oranges and doesn't make a lot of sense. So going to Canada seems to be the right move because I can access cannabis that's actually representative of what's on the market and save myself months of time and a lot of expense. That's amazing. I think I just connected the dots to what your machine learning needs. So this sounds super exciting. Let me see if I've got this. And I'm, I'm totally serious, not joking. <laughs> you essentially need to control an environment of knowing what kind of cannabis people have in their system and then have them using their headset so that your machine learning can improve detecting based on those levels and potentially even know those levels so it's not like you could just give a bunch of headsets out to a bunch of local people and be like, go ahead and wear these whenever you're intoxicated. But you can't do that because you can't get your approval to use the cannabis you need to create the study. Yeah, so getting clinical quality data, I could, you know, I can go to a state where it's recreationally legal and I could say, hey, you seem like you're high, put this headset on and see what's happening. That's not the sort of data that I think is going to be really useful in building the machine learning. We need clinical quality data that is reliable and we can say, okay, this person has consumed this amount of THC, here's the outcome, and or this person's sober, here's what their eyes look like. And really, we need, we need that sort of quality data and we can't collect that by going to random people. In the clinical trials, do you also need to do like saliva blood tests also so that you could match that data? Is that part of what you need? We're considering it, but it's not that ultimately isn't that useful for us because, there, again, there has never been a study that has correlated bodily THC with impairment. And so if that was the case, that would be useful. If we, when, we, when we add alcohol to the headset, for example, we'll have a breathalyzer saying, okay, this is what 0.08 looks like. This is what 0.1 looks like. Without that standard that exists for cannabis, though, it adds expense and doesn't add any value. Hmm. So interesting. So Ken, I, I have one more question, then I want to transition us into rapid fire. I'm just thinking about your background and you now being in this industry. There's so much stigma in it, but yet yeah, you're clearly very professional, taking it very seriously. Like this is not a joke to you. What is that like? What is it like to be in an industry that people still don't fully take seriously when you're, you're clearly trying, passionate about solving an important problem? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, and I'm, I don't consider myself to be part of the cannabis industry necessarily. I'm, you know, I'm solving a problem that's confronting the cannabis industry, and I think the thinking people in the cannabis industry understand that a solution like this has to exist in order for legalization to proceed and not get rolled back ultimately. But the cannabis industry is just a, a bizarre one right now. You know, it's kind of the Wild West. There's all these state laws. There's people that are trying to sell cannabis Using these state laws, some are making a lot of money at it, some are not being very successful at it. There's all this theory on what the federal legalization will look like, what the timing will be on that. And ultimately, this I think the stigma is being removed, but there still is a stigma, certainly. At the end of the day, I'm very mission-driven on this. I believe that cannabis should be legal. It doesn't make sense. If you look at it objectively, it does not make sense for cannabis to be illegal, but alcohol to be legal. 
the drug war is an incredibly racist and expensive and ineffective political experiment. And ultimately, I think people are starting to understand that. And this device, I think, can really facilitate a lot of the changes that some people are talking about, starting with cannabis, certainly. So it's it's really important, I think, that something exists that can keep our roads safe if we're going to take these steps and start thinking about, should cannabis be legal? Mm. We can't We can't legalize a substance, but have no way to know if someone is driving around too high and ultimately, you know, causing problems. There's a lot of societal cost that comes with that. And I'm very committed to at least allowing cannabis to have the same footing as alcohol in in terms of how it can be policed. Amazing. And I do want to throw in too that Ken is currently raising his seed round and we'll have details at the end of the episode of how to get in touch with him if you're interested. Let's go into the rapid fire questions. I'm curious, as usual, I always love these. First question, what are you looking forward to in the next 30 days? Yeah, good question. So my wife and I got married in 2019 and due to some work stuff, we weren't we didn't immediately take our honeymoon after we got married. And then we had planned to take it in March of, or sorry, April of 20. And then we had a global pandemic and I was working 100 hour weeks. So we ended up obviously not taking our honeymoon. And so we're going to be doing that in the next, I think we leave in three weeks. Yay, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a little late and we're going to have to have another conversation <laughs> about letting work get in the way of a honeymoon, but we'll, we'll take that one offline. If your company were shut down for a week and you could do anything with your time but work, what would you do with it? I think I would go visit my brother who's in Germany. Uh, he's he's in the military and has been stationed there, so it would be great to hop over and see him. That's amazing. Sounds fun. Anything binge-worthy in your life right now? Books, podcasts, TV shows? Yeah, I read a lot, but I'll say the thing I've been binging on is the All In podcast. That's a podcast with four guys from Silicon Valley who have very, I think, different viewpoints on a lot of issues, but they've got a really great chemistry and they're some of the smartest people. It's not, it's, it is business focused, but it's not all business. They talk about, you know, pandemic response and federal spending and inflation and it's, Honestly, if you haven't listened to it, it's worth it. It's phenomenal. Cool. I'm going to check it out. I haven't heard of that one, and I'm always looking for a good new podcast. Thank you. Who is someone you're really looking up to in life right now? Yeah, so I think hero worship is risky. There's <laughs> there's always this high potential that you're going to be disappointed at some point, and so I try to keep that under control. But I would say the people that I look up to are Elon Musk. Obviously, you know he's he's done such phenomenal things, and I think he's he's just a, a really interesting mission-driven guy who is you know he's working off this playbook that is going to ultimately land humans on Mars, which I think is pretty amazing. Tim Ferriss is another one that I really look up to. I think he's thinking really clearly about some big societal issues, and he's a phenomenal interviewer as well. And then Shamath Palihapitiya is another guy that I have been really enjoying lately. He's one of the hosts of the All In podcast and seems to be a really, really intelligent, thoughtful guy who is working hard to, I think, tackle some big social issues. Hmm. Amazing. Thank you. If you are not the founder of Gaze, what do you think you would be doing right now? 
This one's tough. I, I would probably pick another big problem and start a company around it. I'm not sure what that would be, honestly, but there are, there are huge problems. And I think the people that are interested in those have almost duty to themselves and to the world to try. Yes, I feel that pain. Sometimes wish I could turn it off. <laughs> what is a current challenge you're facing? I'd say the biggest challenge, well, personally, we moved right after my job ended from Helena to Missoula, Montana, and integrating into a new community in the midst of a pandemic has been really tricky. Obviously, you know, we can't like go out and meet people or find new friends. So that's been an interesting and challenging problem. Professionally, I would say collecting enough data to create a scientifically valid, accurate machine learning model is probably, that's what keeps me awake at night. Sure. Yeah, that's a hard problem. Final question. What keeps you motivated on days when what you're doing seems impossible? Startups are so hard. For anyone who hasn't done one, I mean, it's it's orders of magnitude harder than you think it's going to be. And I, I think that you cannot succeed in that without being incredibly mission-driven. So it's really the mission that keeps me going and understanding that this is a major problem that we have to solve. Somebody's going to solve it. I want that to be me. And I think this is the right solution for it. Mm, that I, it's, it's so true too. Startups are sometimes miserable. It's so <laughs> funny. I say that. And I'm, I'm also like, and I think everyone should be a founder, like go be a founder at least once, but it, it's, it's like a different kind of hard. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much. Can you tell our audience where to find you and gaze online? Yeah, thank you so much. This has been fun. You can find Gaze at G-A-I-Z-E dot A-I, G-A-I-Z-E dot A-I. And then my email is Ken at Gaze dot A-I. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.